Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 19th, 2022. Friday's a quiet days, particularly in August. Um, but there's lots of news, as always, about the January 6th insurrection, lots of uh, testimony, lots of investigations in Washington, D.C. of this so-called uh, insurrection, angry people demonstrating, challenging the authorities, the Constitution, the powers that be, all sorts of remarkable images for uh, that will I think remain indelible in our minds for people just listening. You can imagine those images from January 6th of 2020 um, or 2021. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of the images of the French Revolution from more than 200 years before, the images of storming of the Bastille, taking uh, the powers, the institutions that controlled society back then. Uh, the French Revolution is, of course, an iconic event for historians and people who want to understand, make sense of the past. As I said, the images are romantic and revolutionary and in an odd kind of way, perhaps represent um, the pure version of the corruption of, uh, of January 6th. We haven't done a show on the French Revolution and I'm thrilled that we have uh, one of uh, America's, I think, leading historians on the French Revolution, Laura Mason. She has a new book out, The Last Revolutionaries, The Conspiracy Trial of Gracchus Babio from The Equal. She's also the author of Singing the French Revolution, Popular Culture and Politics, 1787 to 1799. But uh, Laura is joining me from... Um, uh, Johns Hopkins University, where she teaches. Uh, Laura, maybe this is a bit of an unfair question, but it's my show, so I can ask unfair questions. Um, are there any similarities between the French Revolution and January 6th, apart from those dramatic, somewhat romantic images of people demonstrating against the powers that be? Yeah, I think that's an absolutely fair question. Uh, and it's one I've spent a lot of time thinking about lately, I think the important difference between what French revolutionaries were doing at the end of the 18th century and what the January 6th insurrection was about is that French revolutionaries were insurgent because they were trying to claim political rights for the people, um, because they were trying to win better political representation and better representation by their government. It's been firmly established that the elections that were held prior to the January 6th insurrection were legitimate elections. People, the votes were properly counted. There was no, um, no kind of conspiracy to suppress voting. Voting is exceptionally secure in the United States. So I think that the difference between what French revolutionaries were doing and what the January 6th people were doing is that French revolutionaries were trying to gain precisely the kind of system that January 6th people are trying to, were trying to overthrow. 
So there's a narrative there, uh, Laura, the beginning and the end of the story. Let's not talk too much about Jeremy Sick because that's not your thing. You're a historian of the French Revolution. You've spent your life studying it, as I said. Um, you're the author of Singing the French Revolution and the new book, uh, The Last Revolutionaries, The Conspiracy Trial of Gracious Bebeuf and the Equals. What's interesting about it? From you, I think you touched on it in that January 6th response, but why have you dedicated your life, like so many other historians? I think if there's one subject that has seduced more historians over the last 200 years, it's the French Revolution in the United States, obviously in France and in Europe. What, what is it about the French Revolution that still makes it so compelling, so important and so contemporary? Yeah, um, excellent question. Uh, I often tell my students that I have now spent about three times as long studying the revolution as the revolution actually took to occur. Um, I first came to the revolution when I read a classic of the mid 20th century, a book called um, uh, The Coming of the French Revolution by Georges Lefebvre. He was a he was a, a important French historian. And I have this vivid memory of reading Lefebvre's account of the taking of the Bastille in 1789 and just being stunned. Where did ordinary people get the idea that they could attack the king's fortress? And how was it that they managed to defeat it? So that question, how do ordinary people um, people who often had limited literacy, um, people who didn't have access to political organizations or political institutions, who didn't have the right to vote. How did those people understand politics and how did they come to participate in politics as um, energetically and as successfully as they did? And I really think that that is what connects my first and second books, is that idea of ordinary people entering into a political world and shaping its future direction. Historians, of course, specialize in thinking about agency, popular agency, the agency of the people. Uh, and it's often occurred to me, not that I'm an expert on the French Revolution, but certainly in response to what you just said, to ask whether or not the French people who participated in this revolution, and I know we use that word carefully because not all French people did. It was mm -hmm. a Paris event and it wasn't everybody in Paris. Did they understand what they were doing? Did they understand in, in a kind of, I guess, in the language of Marx, did they understand that they were participating in a narrative, a grand narrative? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There was this, there was a, a really deep-seated feeling of doing something world-changing, that French citizens believed that they were not only changing France and changing their own condition, but that they were setting an example for the rest of the world. And you can see it not only in the kind of energy that they brought to revolutionary politics, but you can see it in revolutionary culture as well. Um, the fact that people would give their babies names like liberté or egalité, that um, they changed the calendar. They created a revolutionary calendar, the year one being the first year of the Republic. So there was a, a really profound sense of participating in something novel and historic. Um, and I think that that's one of the things 
if we if we turn to Babeuf, I think that that's one of the things that drove Babeuf's activism in the final years of the revolution. He had lived through the first half of the revolution, and he had a sense, this a, a really sort of deeply felt sense that this terrific opportunity opportunity to empower ordinary people was passing away. And that if he didn't stir the people for sort of one more leap forward, all everything that they had worked for since 1789 was going to come crashing down. And in effect, he was right. Because the, the revolution ends um, in 1789 with a coup against the elected government and the creation of a government that... Right. So, so, Laura, let's step back a little bit because you're you're immersed in this. Uh, yeah. Most of our viewers and listeners aren't. The French Revolution, as you've hinted, was a series of revolutions. You've spent your life studying it. Mm -hmm. You've spent more time studying it than the revolution itself. But the revolution lasted quite a long time. Um, how would you break it down? It began in 1789, of course, but there are a series of events, a series of, of chapters or moments or scenes in the revolution. I, I do want to get to your book, The Last Revolutionaries on Babayov, but let's let's uh, begin with a, a short narrative of what happened up till him. Yeah, so the revolution formally begins in 1789 with the taking of the Bastille. Um, the monarchy was going bankrupt and it had been forced to call into being um, uh, an estate general, which were uh, 1,200 representatives elected from across France who were supposed to help Louis XVI reform the monarchy. Um, through at, at a certain point, um, both the people of Paris and many of the members of and a states general that had transformed itself into a national assembly, um, became convinced that the king was in fact going to stage a coup against the assembly. So the taking of the Bastille was a moment when the people of Paris stormed a citadel of the king's power to protect themselves. And ultimately they ended up protecting the national assembly. So this was, but this is just the beginning rather than the end. And, and no one quite knew, as you suggested at the beginning, what anyone was doing. This was the first time it, it had happened, certainly in the history of the West. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what you see between 1789 and 1792 is first there's this period when the new National Assembly begins to draft a constitution, they issue a declaration of the rights of man and citizen that declares certain rights um, as belonging to all human beings, being conferred on all human beings by nature. Um, and the declaration of the rights of man and citizen is in many ways similar to our own, um, the American Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights, that it assumes that there are certain rights that belong to all of us. Um, so, in the first several years of the revolution, we see revolutionaries kind of debating what rights do citizens have? How are they going to legislate those rights? And then the revolution. So would that be fair to say, and again, jumping in here and borrowing yeah. from Wikipedia, um, up, there was a, a, 
appeared up until about 1792, 1793, when the moderates, the Girons, were in power, and then everything changes. Yeah, well, the moderates... And I call them the moderate. And again, please correct me if I'm wrong. I, no, I'm thinking no, 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 of the no, no. Giron like the Mensheviks or something, whereas the, the Jacobins are the, the Bolsheviks. Yeah, well, I would argue that the, the, the sort of Jacobin Bolshevik comparison is, is overstated. Um, but what I would say is that the moderates reign really until 1791. And there is this sense when revolutionaries celebrate the first anniversary of the taking of the Bastille in the summer of 1791, there's this glorious sense that the revolution's over. We've done it. You know, we've like declared the rights of man. We're legislating the rights of man. The assembly's drafting a constitution. Everything's going to be fine. But what happens is um, in the summer of 1791, the king who had claimed to be friendly to the revolution tried to flee. Surprise, and, surprise. That's not yeah, surprise for the he, last time something like that's happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he was he was spotted and captured near the border um with kind of Austria and Prussia um and returned under guard to Paris. And it's really from that moment that a polarization sets in, and it's a polarization that's intensified the following year in the spring of 1792 by the declaration of war, because as we know, war heightens fears, it deepens political polarization. And the polarization finally becomes, polarization and mistrust of the king finally becomes so great that in the summer of 1792, Parisians stage another revolution and we get a republic. That's when the government abolishes the monarchy establishes a republic and declares the first system of universal male suffrage in the modern world. So we get how, um, how, how much were they trying to learn from and react against what had happened in England the previous century in the revolution against the king, the execution of the king, which in some ways there are some similar narratives. I mean, they're different in other ways, of course. Yeah, some French revolutionaries talk about what had taken place in England in the preceding century. Um, but they talk about it less than, than they do after the end of the terror, after Robespierre is defeated, because some of Robespierre's opponents refer to him as the new Cromwell. So, yeah. so you brought up um, the R word, Robespierre, perhaps the most famous of all. <laughs> revolutionaries yeah. mm -hmm. uh tell me about him and, and 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 when he he shaped or began to shape the narrative and imprinted his own rather bloody signature on on events well so robespierre is um he's a deputy uh in um he's a deputy in the the national convention this is the legislative body that's created after the revolution of 1792 when france becomes a republic they create um, a new legislative body called the National Convention. And Robespierre is a member of the National Convention and um, he becomes a part of the Committee of Public Safety. Although the Committee of Public Safety um, is not formally the executive power, in effect, it comes to act as the executive. And this committee now has a, 
a chilling and almost Orwellian quality. I'm not sure if it, it well, deserved that quality. Yeah, I don't think they do. I think that um, there are profound problems with the Committee of Public Safety because it comes to violate the rule of law. Um, but the Committee of Public Safety doesn't operate alone. Every person who sits on the Committee of Public Safety, there are 12 men, every man who sits on the Committee of Public Safety is elected by the other deputies, elected by their colleagues in the National Convention. So the kinds of policies that the Committee of Public Safety undertakes are policies that have been approved by the larger convention. After the Committee of Public Safety is defeated and Robespierre is executed in the summer of 1794. The guards must have their blood, of course. Um, he, he was guilty of, he had a lot of blood on his hands. So the, the... Well, he did, he did. But a lot of other deputies had blood on their hands too. And they wanted to, to, to hide that. They wanted to disguise their own excesses. And in some cases, their own breaches of the law by loudly attacking the former members of the Committee of Public Safety who couldn't defend themselves because they were dead. So was this the end or the beginning of the Reign of Terror? Lord? So the end of the Reign of Terror is in 1794, July 1794. That's, the, that, that's when Robespierre and um, the Committee of Public Safety are overthrown. Robespierre and um, dozens and dozens and dozens of allies are executed um, within days without trial. But then we get uh, a terrible year that follows. Um, 1795 and, is the terrible yeah, year. Yeah, 1794, 1795. This is a year that used to be known as the Thermidorian reaction. Some people now simply refer to it according to the revolutionary calendar, the year three. But in that year, there is a bitter settling of scores. Robespierre and the members of the Committee of Public Safety are attacked for having violated the rule of law. Um, and I'm not defending their violation of the rule of law. I find it deeply troubling. But what I'm saying is that they were often attacked by men who were as guilty as they were. Um, and who often used attacks on Robespierre and the Committee of Public Safety as a cover to roll back some of the more productive features of revolutionary government introduced under the Committee of Public Safety, who used attacks on um, Robespierre and the Committee of Public Safety to as cover to um, repeal price controls that had insurance. Laura, how controversial is this? Are there some historians who would be listening to you and thinking this woman's insane? She's trying to defend. Um... Uh, Jacobinism and, and Robespierre, or is this the conventional view? Or no, are you more this, this politically the on the left, shall we this say? This isn't the conventional view, but it's also not, I'm not out there on the fringe. Um, this is, this is a, a conversation that we have begun to have um, really in the last maybe 10 or 15 years. Um, and I know that there are people who disagree um, with this particular reading of what happened in the year three, but I know that there are also a lot of historians who appreciate that the year three was, an, was also a violent year 
and a year in which democracy was not restored, um, social welfare was repealed, um, men in government and men in the press stirred up right-wing thugs to uh, take revenge on not only on former Jacobins, which was a sort of political affiliation, um, but former sans-culottes, people who were kind of, who had been- Sounds a little, yeah, I mean, coming, sounds a little like America in some ways. Um, so let's get to the story of, of your new book, The Last Revolutionaries, The Conspiracy Trial of Gracious Babiev and the Equals. Tell me about him. Uh, How do you pronounce his name? You pronounce it beautifully. Oh, thank you. So it's Gracious Babiev, and he named himself that had so, Wikipedia says Francois Noel because that was his given name at birth. He yeah, but he was also known as Gra let's call him Gracchus. So yeah, that's he renamed him. himself Gracchus um, in seventeen ninety four, right during this. So I'm guessing that, that that he, as one of the last revolutionaries, was not thrilled with this um, the revenge against um, uh, Robespierre and the other Jacobins. Is that fair? Well. well that's kind of the surprising thing about Babeuf is initially he supports the defeat of Robespierre because Robespierre and many of his allies had not respected democracy or the rule of law. They adopted a democratic constitution in 1793 and almost immediately suspended it. So Babeuf thought after the defeat of Robespierre, he thought that this was the moment when democracy was going to be restored. And so he was hired to publish a newspaper by two men who proved to be really virulent reactionaries. But Babeuf thought that they were all on the same side, that they were and all- And he was, uh, and I'm assuming, Lauren, again, I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, and I apologize for keeping on jumping in here, but I just want no, to make no, everything okay. clear. I'm assuming that, in your mind at least, he was a, a a pure fellow, intellectually, ideologically, morally. That uh, I mean, the the Wikipedia entry describes him as an advocate of the poor. Um, so here was a man who did he capture the democratic, radical spirit of the revolution as well as anyone. Well, so let me say first of all, in response to your question, I don't think anybody's pure. Um, the question is. Uh, Good. I agree with you. <laughs> how, what are they, what are they fighting for and how are they fighting for it? Um, I think that Babeuf was really, was committed to the principle of democracy. I think he was committed to the notion that the revolution and the revolutionary government should serve the people. Um, but I also think that he, um, I think that in the last years of his life, he became so embittered and had such a profound sense of being beleaguered um, that I don't think he always acted in the most politically pragmatic way. Doesn't mean that I can't admire what his ideals were and what he thought he was fighting for. But um, I also, um, 
I, I don't fully agree with what he was um, with what he was trying to establish because I don't think that it was realistic. Um, so very briefly, Laura, he went to trial. Mm -hmm. uh, you call him one of the last revolutionaries. Um, so what what was his trial and what happened and how did perhaps this mark the last radical act or the, the last sort of moment of radicalism in the revolution before Bonaparte? So Babeuf, um, when he realizes that these reactionaries he's working with are in fact reactionaries, um, he breaks with them and he says, I thought I was fighting for the restoration of democracy. That's not what's happening. Not only is democracy not being restored, price controls are being removed. So people can't afford to buy, ordinary people can't afford to buy food. Um, public works programs are being abolished. So jobs are disappearing. Um, so Babeuf, in breaking with these former patrons, um, they denounced him to the police. He was arrested. He spent some time in prison. Um, and uh, while he was in prison, he developed a theory with a man he met in prison, a guy named Charles Germain. And what he and Germain came to agree on was that the best way to abolish poverty was by abolishing the institution of private property. So he was, uh, would it be fair to say that he was Proudhon before Proudhon? Yeah, there are definitely links between Babeuf and And it's and funny, Proudhon came up in a show this week. I did a show with Edward Chances, just had written a history of interest, and he brought up Proudhon, very influential 19th century French anarchist thinker. Yeah, yeah, there, there are definite, you can definitely sort of trace a line of descent or ascent, however you're thinking about it, between Babeuf and, um, and Proudhon. So... Um, yeah, but so Babeuf becomes convinced that the only way forward for France is to um, abolish private property. He spends about eight months in prison. When he comes out of prison, he learns that one of his own children starved to death um, after the abolition of price controls. So while he was in prison, um, his, little, his daughter Sophie, she was four years old, um, starved to death. Um, and he also comes out of prison to a world that's profoundly changed because the democratic constitution that he was fighting for had been abolished and replaced with a much more conservative constitution that established a new government, the government of the directory. So Babeuf continues publishing the newspaper he had published um, before his arrest. It's a newspaper that's called the People's Tribune. And in that newspaper, he argues that France should abolish private property, that the only way to move forward is um, by allowing people to, by encouraging people to turn everything they produce over to common storehouses, and then it will be redistributed with absolute equality. So he says, he says anything that a rich person has in excess is effectively taking food from the poor person. So Babeuf publishes a lot of these ideas. The police come after him. He goes into hiding. Um, and in the spring of 
that both joins with a small circle of other people and they decide that they're going to conspire against the sitting government, against the directory. I'm sure this now, their ideas on getting rid of private property didn't thrill it, the property owners. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it didn't thrill the property owners, but they also want to get rid of the current constitution. This was called the Constitution of 1795. And they wanted to re, 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 revive the, the Democratic Constitution of 1793. And I, and I think that that's what really upset the sitting government. Well, so I mean, every revolution has its baboof. Uh, the British, the English Revolution had the leveders. The Amer even the American Revolution had radicals who didn't come to power. Is there anything particularly resonant in your view? I mean, you've you've written a book about the conspiracy of equals. You've written a book about baboof. Why is his story relevant still today? Why should we care about it? So. Um... Babeuf, I would argue that Babeuf is more radical than the Levelers, um, that the Levelers were, were most interested in democracy. Okay, I, I take that point, but but why should we care yeah, so about, we a, about a, a French revolutionary who yeah, was who believed in the we, abolition of private property and was executed? Yeah, I think that we should care about Babeuf because the foundational arguments that he was making were about democracy and social welfare that Babeuf was insisting that, um, that the abolition of universal male suffrage was wrong. Babeuf might've even believed that women should be involved in politics. Babeuf Ooh. was insisting that the government had a responsibility to feed citizens. The government of the directory was attacking social welfare and it was attacking democracy because it was trying to put the genie of popular politics back in the bottle. It was the directory, the directorial government believed that government should be an affair of elites. The man who was ahead of the committee that penned the constitution of 1795 said, this should be government by the best. And by the best, I mean men with property. And that was, those were the issues that Babeuf and his allies were challenging. And I think the reason I think that this is important for us now is because, um, it's because the kind of fight that played out between Babeuf and the directory tells us what happens when governments ignore citizens when governments act as if they can march onward without attending to the political rights and the physical needs of ordinary people and i think that when governments do that they radicalize the population and in the wake of Babov's trial the directory used the excuse of his conspiracy as justification to stage coups against. And of course, the ultimate coup was the coup of Napoleon who militarized the revolution. Is there an alternative? I mean, you're a historian, um, of course, Laura, and all historians have counter histories at the back of their mind, even if they don't admit it. What would have happened had Babouf come to power and perhaps we never 
would have heard the name Napoleon. Yeah, so I remember, what would have been the alternative history? No Russian Revolution. Everything would have been different, right? Well, my my counter my my counter history, my alternative history is not what if Babuth had come to power because I don't think he would have. My alternative history is one in which um, the democratic constitution was not illegally suppressed; it was implemented. The government held legitimate democratic elections. It didn't tamper with electoral processes. It didn't disenfranchise people. It respected the outcomes of the elections. And it invested in social welfare programs so that citizens would understand both through the process of voting and through the process of social welfare institutions that this was their government. This was a government they had a stake in. This was a nation that was theirs, that it didn't, didn't just belong to the elites. So if you respect democratic process, the Republic survives. Napoleon comes to power because the directory keeps toppling electoral results. It's staged the directory, the directory and the legislature between them, there were four coups in four years. The last one being the one that brought to Napoleon to power. This idea that you can tamper with electoral processes and disenfranchise voters, and that somehow elites are going to get away with this is a dream. So my alternate history is the alternate history that I very much hope to see play out here, which is one in which we don't narrow democratic process, but we broaden it. We bring everyone into the electoral process and we respect rule of law. We respect civil liberties. We respect electoral processes. This struggle, it seems to me, um, Laura, has gone on for the last 200 years. I um, did an interview, a very different kind of book from yours, very different kind of conversation with the novelist, uh, but memoirist Natasha Sisler, All Signs Point to Paris. It's a book about her going to Paris and um, looking up a lot of men who were born in November 1968, which of course reminds us of the events of 1968 in Paris. And we talked a little bit about that. To what extent has the history of France over the last 200 years, since the events you describe, has been a replay of this struggle between baboofists, if you want to call them, and centralists or people in pr protecting private property? To what extent was the were the issues that that he was executed for um, ha, have been unresolved the last two hundred years and remain unresolved? I'd say that the debates over politics, over political participation, over who counts as a citizen, are debates that continue today, and they occur with greater and lesser intensity. Um, I would say debates about what a state owes its citizens in terms of social welfare, those debates continue as well and they advance and retreat. Um, but I would say on that score, the French are doing a better job than um, Americans are. There's a much stronger... Uh, you mean contemporary people. French people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and Macron and has not, been on, on the show before before he was uh, president, but certainly an interesting character. What about 
the role of nationalism here. We did a show last year with the Greek historian Roderick Beaton on the Greek Revolution of 1821. He has a lovely book out, Greece, Biography of a Modern Nation. The revolutions of the 19th century tended to be nationalist revolutions. Was Babouf a nationalist? And was his politics, in a way, a challenge to the revolutionary nationalism that came to define the 19th century in Europe? I wouldn't characterize him as a nationalist. Um, there are moments when he speaks about um, trade relations um, being sort of restricted domestically for a short time. But I think ultimately um, Babeuf hoped that the kind of revolution he would excite in Paris would spread through France and would ultimately spread to the rest of the world. He didn't spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, but I really wouldn't, nationalism really wasn't an important issue to him. Um, it was an important issue to other revolutionaries. Certainly to but, Napoleon, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think Babeuf himself was so concerned with establishing democracy and guaranteeing um, equality, true social equality um, in France, that he he didn't really look to um, to France's relationship to the rest of the world. Um, and I think, too, it's important to remember that he was an autodidact. He most of the philosophy he encountered was either through independent reading through correspondence with local intellectuals or through some of the men he met and conspired with in the conspiracy of equals. And they they weren't talking about, inter, about nationalism or internationalism at that point. They were really talking about what was right in front of them. It's fascinating stuff, Laura. Um, and this stuff goes on and on. We could spend the rest of the day talking about it. Uh, mm -hmm. Your book, The Last Revolutionaries, The Conspiracy Trial of Gracchus Babouf and the Equals is just out. It's been uh, got lots of great reviews. Congratulations on that. You mentioned a Thank couple you. of other histories of the French Revolution that influence you. What else could people read in addition to yours, which is perhaps um, advanced for people who already know the revolution? Are there some introductory texts that you think are still very valuable to make sense of the revolution? And are there writers for whom your focus on democracy and politics are also important? Yeah, so um, for Histories of the Revolution, um, Timothy Tackett's book, When the King Took Flight, um, I think is a great introduction to revolutionary politics at that turning point in 1791. It's about the king's flight to Varennes why he fled, how revolutionary politics had evolved up to that point, and how they changed after his flight. So for someone who's looking for an introduction to how the revolution began to radicalize, um, I don't think they could do better than Tim Tackett's book. Um, in terms of books about democracy and politics, the two books I have on my bedside table right now are um, a book by, um, uh, sorry, I'm looking at my notes because I always forget names. 
um, a book by Mike Davis and John Wiener that's called, it's about um, LA in the 60s called Set the Night on Fire. Mm. Um, and I also have Sarah Shulman's book, Let the Record Show, which is about the a history of ACT UP. Um, and I have both of those books. I've just started Set the, Set the Night on Fire, um, but I've turned to both of those books because I'm interested in how modern American activists have organized to defend citizens' rights and social justice. So um, those are two books that I think um, might make for really interesting reads. 